to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, July 17th, 2009. I'm Alana Ranke. generally makes me think of sci-fi movies that thaw people who've been frozen for 200 years. I mean, that was until last week when I visited the Ambrose Monell Collection for Molecular and Microbial Research at the American Museum of Natural History. They have enough cryogenic storage space to store over one million tissue samples from species all over the world. Last week, the American Museum of Natural History and the National Park Service signed a new deal. In this week's podcast, you'll learn what it's about, get a tour of the cryogenic lab at the museum, and hear from a couple of scientists whose work will benefit from this new relationship. But one more thing. We've got a brand new website at the New York Academy of Sciences, which means some brand new links for you to update. If you've got Science in the City content on your blogs or web pages, let us know. We'll help you direct your readers to the content on our new site. And also, if you subscribe to any of our RSS feeds, get our new feed info on scienceandthecity.org. I'm Julie Feinstein. I'm the collection manager of the Ambrose Monell Collection for Molecular and Microbial Research. And where are we right now? We're in the basement of the American Museum of Natural History. We call it lower level section 11. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I've come to the depths of the museum to check out Feinstein's lab. It's not your usual lab, though. Feinstein manages the museum's frozen tissue sample collection, a room full of cryogenic storage vats cooled with liquid nitrogen to below minus 150 degrees Celsius. I'm one of them. So where are we right now? We are in what we call the dry lab. Okay. Well, there's no chemical solution stuff done here. Things are not washed here. More than 60,000 samples are currently stored in the Ambrose Manal collection, which was started in 2001. About 40,000 species are represented within this sample collection, and they come from all over the world. Soon, there'll be a lot more. Last week, the museum and the National Park Service made a deal. From now on, the museum will be the home to thousands of frozen tissue samples from threatened and endangered species found in the national parks. George Amato is the director of the Sackler Institute for Comparative Genomics at the museum. One of the things that the Park Service does is it does its own research, but also allows scientists to come in and do research in the national parks with the idea that that research will help to maintain the parks, better understand what are the threats to those wildlife, especially for threatened and endangered species. And one element of that kind of research involves taking biological samples from those species to answer a whole variety of questions. Up until now, there really wasn't a place for the park to send those samples to so that they would be well cared for and, more importantly, available to other researchers who might be able to do some research that would be significant in helping to conserve those threatened and endangered species. Research like genetic testing. Amato looks at DNA of endangered species populations. His lab will be using some of the samples from the NPS to look at the genetic makeup of endangered populations. It really was a new field about 20 years ago when a number of scientists said, you know these new techniques in looking at DNA and in 
molecular evolution might be applicable to understanding threats to endangered species. And this was kind of a new idea, especially back then, because again, it's not immediately intuitive why examining a small biological sample can tell you something important about conserving species. And now, 20 years later, we can give you many, many examples. One example comparative genetics can help with is the subspecies dilemma, something Amato has spent a lot of time researching. What I refer to as the subspecies dilemma has a a very particular meaning within conservation. And what that meaning is, is that sometimes for species that either have a wide distribution or occur in places sort of distributed widely across a geographic area, we're not exactly certain whether or not different populations are really unique, closely related species that are on their own evolutionary trajectory and need to be treated as separate, or whether or not they're just different populations of the same species. A common example from when I first started this kind of work were tigers. So we would talk about Bengal tigers and Siberian tigers and Sumatran tigers, and the question was, you know, are they all distinct and need their own conservation strategies, or are tigers really a single species? And uh, we recently actually just published a paper that's uh, an example of this as it relates to crocodiles in Central Africa. There's a, a group of crocodiles in Central Africa called the African dwarf crocodile. One of the reasons it was of interest to us is that it's heavily hunted by local people, both you know, as a sustainable food source for them, but increasingly uh, harvested commercially for what they call bushmeat to be sent to cities where people just prefer to eat wild meat. And so we were sort of interested in learning more about the species and its population and whether this was sustainable. Well, during the course of the work that we were doing, and this was led by a former graduate student working with me, Mitch Eaton, Mitch was out there studying these crocodiles. When we brought the crocodile samples back to the lab and we began to look at their DNA, we realized that genetically they were very different in different parts of Central West Africa. And so uh, Mitch ended up collecting 600 samples. I I had some great fun out there catching crocodiles with him. And we examined those samples, but not only those samples. We examined samples from other crocodiles that had been stored away in frozen tissue collection. And we also examined DNA from actually the specimen from which this species was first described over 100 years ago that was resided as the type specimen down in our herpetology collection. So we did a very extensive survey of DNA from these crocodiles. And when we did that and did the analysis, what we came to find was that they were actually three distinct species of crocodiles. And that had great implications for for their conservation and for designing conservation strategies for them. So can you describe what we're looking at? Yeah, we're just in a large open room with seven large silver cryovats. They're sort of big, round, giant thermos bottles, about five feet high. <laughs> They're on wheels, which is not immediately noticeable, but it's, it's a very flexible collection space. So if we had a, a disaster and we needed to take them out, we could just take the whole collection outside. And and you see those, they're attached to the pipes to the nitrogen source with flexible hoses. And on the pipes, it's frozen because it's so cold. It's frosty because this is Friday, and on Friday, (laughs) we we top off our vats. Oh. So there's, these vats are um, sort of self-monitoring. It's not an important part of their function, but they keep track of when they think that their nitrogen level is too low. How much nitrogen is in one of these tanks? 
about eight inches in the bottom of this, and it's about uh, five feet wide. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there are over 1,200 species worldwide on the threatened and endangered species list, which is updated daily. When it comes to the NPS, their endangered species program is working to stabilize and restore 397 federally listed threatened and endangered species in 195 of their parks. Peter Dratch manages the endangered species program for the National Park Service. So I work on endangered species across the whole national park system. There's about a thousand populations of federally listed species that occur in national parks. And what we want to make sure is, is that the parks are some of the best places for those species to thrive. So we try to make sure that no actions that are taking place in the parks would risk their decline. So we monitor how those federally listed species and sometimes state listed species are doing in the national parks. Why we're collecting these samples is to do genetic monitoring of these species. So in a national park, it's often a small population, and sometimes it's isolated from other populations. And it may be thriving in the park, but the population remains relatively small. So what we want to do is be able to look at the genetic effects of a small population over a long period of time to see if it's losing genetic variation. And we have now very good measures, sophisticated measures, using DNA methods that were developed on humans primarily. We have sophisticated methods to look at how much genetic variation there is. This genetic monitoring is also useful when scientists are breeding populations in captivity. With the California condors, for instance, they were brought into captivity to be able to protect them and to see if their numbers could be increased and then they could be released. But of course, you bring in these condors and you have no idea who's related to whom, who might be brothers and sisters who might be unrelated. And of course, that's very important information in having a genetically healthy population, so you don't have inbreeding and things like that. But so by just examining DNA that you can isolate just from a molted feather from one of these condors, you don't even have to restrain it and take a blood sample, you can obtain DNA information about different genes from that individual. And by comparing that with other individuals, you can then identify how they're related even in these wild populations. Right. Um, okay, so can we, I really want to look inside of one. Can okay. we look inside? Sure. Okay, good. Yahoo! Wow. You're putting on what looks so like... I'm going to put on cryogenic gloves. Oh, cryogenic gloves? What As makes them cryogenic? They allow me to touch the metal that's in contact with liquid nitrogen, very, very cold metal, and not feel that. Really? So are they anything different from your average winter mitt? Yeah, they're about $300 different than really? your average winter mitt. Really? <laughs> These are $300? Yeah, they are for, for a pair. But I would not touch that with, with normal gloves. Wow. This is very cold. All right, you're putting on safety glasses. You've got your cryogenic mitts. Yes. Okay. Okay, now I'm going to step up on the shelf. And what I normally do is push a fill button to try and put some liquid nitrogen slowly into the bottom of this, and that makes a little pressure upward in the tank, and that pushes gas out the top. And that keeps the sort of humid room air from making it any frostier than it has to be okay. inside. All right, there we go, the start fill button. Ooh, and you can see there's liquid nitrogen coming out the top. There's a gaseous nitrogen. Gaseous. Now, you get can my... move so you don't get locked. Woo! Bed. 
and we've just opened this giant lid. It looks like a thick plug of styrofoam. It's sort of like the equivalent of the lid in a uh, thermos bottle. And, uh, and it's like a sea of gaseous nitrogen in there. Yeah, because we filled these to capacity this morning, because it's Friday, it has just turned itself off. Oh, wow. So it'll be a little bit more time before the nitrogen cloud dissipates. <laughs> usually, when it's pushing, it usually kind of pushes out and pushes over. So when you blow into it, you can see, it's hard to see anything in there. It's hard to see anything, but yeah. if you know it's in there, you can reach in, <laughs> you can reach in and pull out oh, wow. a rack. Most of the samples right. the museum will get from the Park Service will be blood samples, collected by researchers who have the park's permission to study an endangered population. Some samples will also be from skin or other tissue. Each sample is placed in a tiny glass vial and meticulously labeled in Feinstein's lab using a barcode system. This allows lab technicians to easily find where in the cryogenic vats the single sample of, say, rhinoceros liver is. 100 tiny sample vials are placed in a small sample box, and it's these little boxes that are then filed away in the cryogenic vats. It's right. just a, like a 13-shelf test tube box rack. Yeah. It's metal, and it's low-tech as can, it can possibly be. And uh, in the permanent, st this is a, this vat, the reason I can freely open it and close it is that it's for temporary storage and there's not very much in it. We just don't like to open the permanent collection all that much yeah. and take things out, out, yeah. in and out. So that, one of those can hold how many? 13? 13 boxes. Oh, yeah. And each box holds 100. So. Okay, wow, so that's so a lot. That's a lot, just in that little space. And so that can be like... 1,300 vials in this collection can be like can represent tremendous diversity. It can be like a hundred whales from the Indian Ocean and a, wow. a few hummingbirds from the Andes and a couple of fruit flies from Hawaii wow. and then like hundreds and hundreds of corals from Indonesia and etc. Wow. That's cool. So this whole. Cool. Uh, the inside of this is divided into like pie-shaped wedges, and we use those just for separating things that we dedicate them to different departments. Oh. Sort of different taxa, like ones for mammals and ones for fish and ones for... And then how do you get to the ones right at the back? The whole thing is mounted on a, a platform that turns very easily. It's beginning to become visible. I think you can start to see it. There are uh, these handles that stick up, and you can just like grab them and pull it, and it rotates like a, like a lazy Susan right. on a dining room table. <laughs> While the American Museum of Natural History will soon be receiving samples from endangered species all over the country, Amato, who's worked on conservation programs in more than 60 countries, says his lab focuses on projects where the programs will have strong support. I would say the vast majority of our conservation programs really do come from where there's an expressed interest or need, usually by people either in their range country or if it was in the United States, in the part of the United States where they're concerned with. In many ways, this is a very natural way for these research projects to develop because you, I would be reluctant to get involved in a research project to conserve a species unless the people who lived in that region wanted to be involved and thought that it was important. 
it'd be very difficult to have a successful program. So for instance, uh, a number of years ago when the forestry division on um, the island of St. Vincent, the island nation of St. Vincent, came to us and said, we really have a problem here in terms of conserving our, our native parrot, which is you know our nation's symbol, the St. Vincent Amazon parrot. Can you work with us to help design a successful conservation strategy for that bird? And I always am quick to point out that, you know, again, I mean, we spent a lot of years working on that project and program. And for all that we contributed without the commitment of the people on the island of St. Vincent, you know, people who are, you know, really struggling to make a living in a, in a difficult place, without their commitment to this kind of thing, there's no way that that could be successful. And I'm always inspired by the people that I work with, especially in the developing world. Some of the first samples the American Museum of Natural History expects to get from the Park Service are from the Channel Island fox population in California. For Science in the City, I'm Elena Rangi. Thanks for tuning in this week. Can't get enough of Science in the City? Try following us on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash sciandthecity. Or you can follow us on Facebook and find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our awesome new website. For more information on Academy membership, or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. And, as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.